Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. Have I ever told you about the time when I won the lottery? It was after a very long day. I had the ticket in my hand and it was almost 11 o'clock. My eyes were dreary and I'm sitting there and I'm staring at the ticket and I'm looking at the drawing on the screen and it says five. I looked down, I had a five. It said 17, I had a 17. 22, 22, this, this is too good to be true. And then the next two numbers, 37 and 44. And I was like, wow, that's the five numbers. All I need is that special Powerball number. And a 16 came out and that matched exactly what I had. I had, you know, my money and I got that ticket and, and, and I won. So I looked up and I closed my eyes and I was just like, I can't believe this happened. And as I opened my eyes, I looked at my phone on my bedside table and I realized it was pager duty going off because something was about to pop. I reached over, I grabbed my computer, I acted the page and I jumped right into exactly what I needed to do. I may not have won all the money I thought I did in my dream, but you know what? I won over the hearts of everybody by being prepared for that page. And here on episode 20 of Plan B Security, we're going to be talking about detection and response. And before we get carried away in the meats and potatoes of this one, quick little disclaimer that these are views of my own and do not represent any views of my employer, family, friends, pets, or acquaintances. And I really, really, really want to zig zig. Ah, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I really want to emphasize the fact that uh, there's a disclaimer here and I want to assure people that I have slightly changed the occurrence, the names, the times, the dates, everything around anything that will be talked about and they are uh, fictitious situations based off of real life learnings and experiences. So I really just want to super double down and remind you I am not a lawyer and I am not your security practitioner. And what I am talking about is a representation of my own and does not hold that uh, of any of my employers current past or in the future. So just like everybody who has handled any type of incident response in the past, you know that it comes in the most inopportune time. So for example, in my little story, it happened in a dream, but I actually used to find myself very frequently getting paged on my commute to or from work. When I worked in New York City, I used to be on the train for about four hours a day. So getting paged on the train wasn't too bad. It usually gave me about 45 minutes of uninterrupted time in order to get connected to the internet, uh, respond, do my triaging, figure out what needed to, to happen for the action items. And then by the time I actually got into the office, I'd be able to sit down with the stakeholders and figure out next steps for whatever type of remediation needed to happen after the mitigation was put in place. Same thing used to happen when I was also commuting from like Santa Monica back up into the mountains where I'd be sitting in a very low service area. Uh, so Verizon wireless, uh, and, and I know the other telecos also call it something very similar, but they have what they call known trouble areas. So a KTA known trouble area is an area where there's no line of sight for a cell tower, low service, unexpected uh, service, or they just don't offer it in that specific area. And, and when you're in driving up the PCH in California outside of Los Angeles, there's a lot of cliffs, a lot of turns, and a lot of buildings, meaning a lot of oversubscription for the already weak service. What this meant was being 100% prepared 100% of the time. I had to do my commute. There's no way I could get out of it. I had to get into the office. And if that meant a two hour train ride, a two hour car ride, I had to be able to do that. So what can I do to prepare myself for the situations when I'm getting pinged or paged or whatever on my commute? 
Now, this is a very broad subject, so I want to try to narrow it down by sharing a few stories and experiences that I had that I think netted the most return in growing my skills or growing my understanding of the space. Because while, yes, you could have the most perfect program in the world, you really need to have the ability to be creative. I mean, at the end of the day, if you have a seam, right, and you're ingesting all of your logs, and you've already done your threat modeling, and you have alerts that you can send to people to self-service them, and then they get escalated to you if they're not handled within an, a specific SLA. Because at the end of the day, if a developer is logging in as root onto a bastion host and they're running a command, that developer themselves is going to be the best person to know if they were the ones actually doing it or not, instead of you, a security practitioner, who doesn't really know if that cr credential was compromised or not. And then how do you make sure that you're responding in a timely manner so that way if it is a true positive, meaning that it's an actual security event, that you're responding timely enough to prevent it from becoming a much worse problem, right? I mean, a lot of times when you think about it, uh, malicious actors will just try to get a foothold into a system and then they implement their method of persistence or their ability to come back and operate inside your network after the initial compromise method was already turned off by your security team or the developers, because that's probably what you end up detecting. So how do you find those other things that happen in the network? And then lastly, how do you learn from it? How do you quantify it? How do you build metrics around it? And then how do you talk about this? Because a lot of times too, these incidents may end up getting wrapped in what we call attorney client privilege or ACP where you can't speak about it unless you've been read into the incident because, you know, there are certain legal aspects that you need to defend. And if you can't speak about it, then how do you let other people know that weren't a part of it, that something happened or that there are growth areas for the rest of the organization to learn from? And this is one of the things where people overlook metrics. That's why it's so important. It gives you the ability to communicate it and really show the value of the security org. So the first part is, can we detect a security event if we don't have logs for it? If we don't have a seam, can we still have an incident response process? And the answer is absolutely yes, and you should. People by this point know that if they see something, they should say something. So you have to make sure that you're vocalizing how they can get in touch with you to report whatever suspicious activity that they're noticing. Could be, hey, it looks like my mouse is moving on the screen, or... I noticed a bunch of these sent emails in my outbox. I don't know. I'm not the one who actually typed them. Or it could even just be there's somebody weird standing outside the building and they look kind of suspicious. They kept trying to follow me in and I asked them to see their badge and they said no, right? Every single one of these is some sort of touch point where you actually don't need logs for, but it gives you the ability to have a starting point. Each one of the tools that you have in your environment is still going to have the ability to collect logs within the platform itself. A seam is really about aggregating it to get the larger picture from start to finish of uh, pre-fail, mid-fail, post-fail, as I like to call it as well. But it, it gives the glue around how everything could be connected in the environment. If you're trying to get to something like user behavioral analysis, you're going to need a seam. You're going to need a place to connect all the dots. But let's say that, for example, you noticed somebody saying that my computer is acting really weird. If you have endpoint detection software, you're going to log on and you're going to take a look. Is there anything out of the ordinary? Is there potentially unwanted applications? I'm going to check the install log. Did they install anything like MacKeeper or Disk Cleanup or one of those super sketchy things from download.net? Maybe, but now you know where to go and look for it. 
how do we detect if we don't have things to detect? How do we even know what to detect? This is where a lot of the foundational work for a detection and response program really goes into understanding the business that you're offering as a full company. And then what are your risks and the threats against your company that you need to make sure you're aware of? Let's say, for example, you're a company that offers some sort of payouts. You have a merchant marketplace, which is set up to collect the bank account information for the contributors of the platform. And they're probably selling through your platform some sort of licensing or products. So really, if you think about that, are you trying to protect the actual assets, the license or the products, or maybe their images or their uh, NFTs or whatever it is in today's day and age that you want to try to relate it to? Is that what you're trying to protect? Yeah, it is. But also it, it's the money that's exchanging hands as well. That payout account, because at this point, your company is essentially a uh, paying transfer agent. So if that's the case, you want to make sure that you have the ability to make sure that money is going to the right person. And as an attacker, they're going to be trying to find ways to get access to those accounts that may have high balances or low balances if they're trying to float beneath the radar and update the bank account payout information in order to send it to a specific account. So in this scenario, let's say that a customer reaches out to customer support and they're like, hey, I had $50,000 in my account. I noticed that it's no longer there. I want my money back. So then customer support agent looks and they're like, well, it looks like you updated your bank account information. And then the customer's like, but I never did. It should be X, Y, Z. And the customer support's like, oh no, it looks like you updated it on this day. Sorry, you know, we're not liable for this. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. That's how you burn bridges. And in my opinion, you ruin the integrity of the brand completely by giving a response like that. So it gets forwarded over to you as a security uh, researcher and you're opening up an incident and you're like, okay, it looks like there's malicious actors trying to in bulk change bank account information for all the payout accounts. Where do you start? I think one of the easiest places to start is if the customer called in the customer support, customer support can see that the bank account information was changed. What was the time that it was changed? Who made the change? How can you figure out the IP address, the user agent? What type of access logs do you have? Where did the authentication occur from? Is the email address for the customer in any type of data breach externally, um, you know, unrelated to your platform? Or is there some sort of vulnerability? Uh, is that API endpoint used to update the bank account information? Are you seeing any type of fuzzing or suspicious activity around that? Using those key data points is one of the ways that you're able to sort of narrow down. Uh, if you almost think like a binary tree, you kind of divide the, the, the problem statement in half and then in half and then in half until you're able to find, is it on the API side or was it on the customer side? Is our platform vulnerable to something that a third party malicious actor was able to find? Or is it something that the customer's credentials were compromised in a third party breach and then replayed in our service because that customer reused the username and password? Right? You want to be able to try to figure out which side do you need to spend most of your time as fast as possible. And when you're writing your playbooks for something like this, that's exactly what you want to be able to focus on. The second part is trying to figure out the scope. So now that you know when it happened and what the, some of the fingerprints of the metadata or what we call as indicators of compromise, IOCs, for that initial reported account, did anybody else have those IOCs touching their accounts as well? And if so, did you see the same type of behavior? Did you see the changing of the username and password? Did you see the changing in the email address or changing of the bank account information, which would allow a malicious actor to persist 
not only access into the account, but also allow them to initiate the payout into their own private uh, bank account. Now, access logs don't record payloads. And I'm pretty sure 99% of the time, you never want to be able to have debug logging turned on in prod because you're going to be logging way more sensitive information than you would ever want. And that would be a huge liability on your side. And just a small little call out in 2013, the FTC brought a case against HTC America, which is a device manufacturer for not disabling debug logging on devices prior to them being sold. This led to the debug log being available to be read by any third-party application which was installed and permitted to read the system log, which was enabled through a manifest configuration line. In a world of React Native, where it's easier to build on one platform and cross-compile, so not only do debug logs on the server side matter, but also debug logs on the client side. Do you have a mobile application? Is it React Native or a native app? which then has the ability to enable or disable debug logging. Is there certain ways that people can then intercept the API calls? Are you doing some sort of obfuscation with your uh, actual distributed package or binary in order to prevent attackers from being able to gain access or learn more about uh, discovering your API, which may be private and not published? A lot of these things come into consideration because just because it's coming from a client and user agent for those requests matches the same one for a version one or two uh, versions behind what you're currently distributing doesn't mean that it's actually coming from the client. Anything that is supplied by the client cannot be trusted. You almost need a way of being able to compartmentalize your brain so you can continue to investigate and get more information to inform where the actual root cause is that's leading to the problem that you're dealing with while also trying to figure out in parallel how to mitigate something like this. Every second that you delay mitigation, and re remember, mitigation is a way of preventing the problem from getting worse, not necessarily solving it long term. That would be remediation. The quickest and easiest thing would be to turn off the ability, as in physically going into the code and submitting a change to prevent the updating of bank account information from the in-app portal. That would probably be the quickest, most, uh, you know, gung-ho way of being able to get it done ASAP. If you know that it's happening in bulk or you're starting to see signs or you think it may be exploited, you know, maybe you found a posting on Reddit or Hacker News or something like that or an underground forum where you're starting to see that there's a larger community kicking up around being able to exploit your application, maybe that's exactly what you need to do. In other cases, maybe you're turning off the HTTP endpoint and you're, uh, instead of updating the code and doing a deploy, maybe you're just putting a route block in your Nginx or Apache config to just 403 all the requests coming in. That way you can have more of your DevOps side instead of your engineering, depending on how intimate you are with the code. That's a, a different way of looking at the problem. And you're, you're moving it from the code function into the transport layer and then upwards into the network stack. So you have a different couple of different ways. Like for example, on network stack, maybe you're seeing all these requests coming in from the same IP address or the same BGP AS number, which is almost like the larger network that the requests are originating from. Because if you're seeing them all come from a, a country that you don't service, do you really need to serve traffic to that country? No, maybe that's a quick way of being able to turn it off. And that's actually something that you see in a lot of mitigations for DDoS or uh, dynamic denial of service attacks when they're coming from distributed places outside of where you normally operate. And how this differs from a mitigation side is, right, you're just trying to stop the bleeding. 
it may mean impact to the customers, but at least you're not losing money and you're not losing sleep as a result of it. If you were to remediate this, remediation would be something where you're partnering with the product and the engineering teams trying to figure out how to solve this from happening again in the future in bulk. One of the easiest ways of remediating something like this is by requiring MFA before changing of the password, the email address, the phone number, or even the bank account number itself. In the event that the credentials were compromised, the username and password could be replayed by any attacker or a stolen session cookie even, uh, because we see that happening all the time. And if we remember a couple months ago, the support system at Okta was compromised, and a lot of support cases had HAR files, which are HTTP archive files, which recorded session cookies, which were authenticated, and then uploaded into support panels. That's as, sim as, as simple as stealing a session would be is getting a copy of that HAR file or just the, the cookie itself uh, if you're playing a man in the middle even as a malicious actor. So there's a lot of times when these things are being replayed and the attacker doesn't even need to re-authenticate MFA when it's a sensitive action. That is what a remediation to something like that would be. What you don't want to do is you don't want to think about it from the side of, well, if this person's in the United States but they have a French bank account, I'm going to block that. Why? There's a lot of weird scenarios and snowflake situations where you don't want to stop that person from being able to, to use the system how they need to. You're over dictating and over prescribing to them how they should be consuming your platform. So this is where you almost need to put on your, your thinking hat and your creative hat on how to solve the problem. Now we were able to do all of this just by either looking at the application logs or the access logs, which normally most of the time is, is good enough to start. But again, you really need to have that SIM in place. If that's not something that you have today, that's what you absolutely need because you should never rely on, on something called plan B for when you should have your plan A thoroughly planned through and through. Now, lastly, after you've remediated it and problem solved going forward, what did you learn from this? What are you missing? What are your gaps? What can you measure? Um, for example, one metric that you might want to start recording and displaying on some sort of uh, incident response or security operations dashboard is, how many pieces of sensitive information are changing in accounts? Is there a increase in email addresses being changed in passwords being changed? Or is there a increase in the amount of bank accounts uh, for used for payouts being changed over a certain amount of time? Is there a trend? Do you have some sort of pattern that you've known and you can establish over, you know, some sort of historical timeline, six months, a year, if you have logs longer than that, maybe even longer, where you can start to see, you know, how often are people actually changing this information? And now you can use that to inform how you're going to respond after you've detected the weird behavior. Writing a playbook also, you know, if I was the one who went through this, which in this situation, you know, it's very close to something I've actually dealt with in the past was how do I write a playbook so anybody can pick it up and run with it when they're waking up in the middle of their winning the lotto dream, they're going to be really pissed off. And now they have to sit there and try to figure out where to start. So the thing is, is okay, where did I go for the logs? How did I find it? What was I most worried about in the situation? So for example, uh, bank account information is being changed, username, passwords being changed, the malicious actor gaining persistence into the environment of the customer's account, so on and so forth, uh, you know, standard account takeover or ATO. I'll start there. And then the second part is it's almost like a build your own story. If you see this, go down this route, right? Remember how I mentioned the binary tree. 
Was it on the API side or was it on the account side? In this situation, you know, it was happening on the actual customer account side where the customer's accounts were being compromised through leaked credentials through another breach, which at the time, I think it was like the Adobe, the huge 153 million Adobe accounts, which were compromised. Now the timelines don't add up directly uh, if you're starting to get a little curious, but one thing to call out was when that data was breached um, by the malicious actor from Adobe, the passwords were encrypted, but there was also a password hint in one of the columns. So once the attackers were able to decrypt those passwords, that's when you started seeing them start to get used within the environment. So that by itself was one of the things that went into its own playbook. So now this one incident led to two separate playbooks where now the other thing was, is let's say a third party service got compromised and it's in the news. We're going to look to see either if there's a data set that's available to us um, or let people know, hey, another service was compromised. If you've used a password that matches that one, then be sure to log into our service and change your password on our platform too to prevent your account from being compromised, right? It's all about trying to educate the user uh, and inform them while reducing the risk and liability. Because for example, if that customer's account was compromised through elite credential, who's liable? We actually saw this as recently as December of 2023 when 23andMe, the DNA genetic testing company, announced that they were breached through the use of a threat actor uh, who used compromised credentials stuffed accounts to access the information, which included a significant number of DNA relative profiles and family tree feature profiles, each of which were connected to the compromised accounts. And while I wasn't able to find a uh, FTC case or proceeding filed against 23andMe by the FTC in 2023. Uh, one thing that did come up was the fact that the FTC did have a case against Microsoft for a data breach that they suffered through a testing environment, which led to privilege escalation and the compromise of internal business emails as a result of the environment remaining available. So now going back to the API or the customer, which one do we focus on? If we did focus on the API side, is there a test environment which may have led to a compromise or some sort of privilege escalation into the production environment where a malicious actor could update the bank account information for the users in our production environment? So while it's a very long-winded way of saying that, yes, you can have seams and logs going everywhere, but if you don't know your business and what needs to be protected, what are you really looking for? And is that really what you need to focus on? How do you turn those logs into something that's not a waste of money for the company that's allowing you to comply with whatever regulatory requirements that are, are necessary? And then how do you go through these exercises, whether it's live and you're doing a retrospective afterwards or a postmortem to make sure that there's things that you're learning from it? Or how do you create tabletop exercises to be able to test these things before you're even there? Everybody, whether you're in sports, you're in the military, you're, you're in some sort of public field service, uh, you're a first responder of any type, you're constantly testing, right? You're, you're practicing, you're learning, you're training, you're making this stuff muscle memory. You need to do the same thing as a detection engineer or a threat response engineer. And those are things that should be kind of figured out. How can you implement that into every little tiny aspect of your day to day? Now, while there's still a million more things to be said on this topic, I think that this is a great way to sort of get people to open up their minds and start thinking creatively. I'd love to continue the conversation about a time when you had 
a incident that you had to respond to or, you know, funny enough, what was the most inconvenient time you've ever received a page? Was it during the birth of one of your kids? Were you using the restroom and you necessarily couldn't respond to it immediately uh, and you got in trouble for it? You know, there's plenty of funny stories that I've heard all over the place and I'd love to hear some of yours. So be sure to find us on X or Instagram with the handle underscore plan B security or even at plan B dot security on the web. And I'm really excited to have you all join us again for the next episode, which will be episode 21, where we're going to talk about authentication and authorization and how this fits into the larger security program, but also the engineering and the customer support space as well. And with that, thanks for tuning into this episode of plan B security with your host, me, Mike McIntosh. 